So you can find me on Rumble uh, where I'm not censored and um, it was... Susan, yeah, see, I, I read that from far away with no classes on. That's what's up. Supersonic eyesight. Kind of like those State Department people that can hear phone calls when they're not on speaker from across a crowded room in a restaurant. And then report on it, of course, and tell uh, <laughs> people like Schiff what they heard. Whatever. So today is going to be a day where we're going to be a little bit somber. And before we start, I wanted us to kind of uh, get a little background of what the ICC is. That's the International Criminal Court. And basically what their outline of what their work is. Because a lot of people don't seem to understand how rules for thee but not for me applies. And one of the not for me is the United States. So... Crimes against humanity is basically what uh, they go and target. In uh, At the Cornell, Cornell Law School, actually, let me pull it up so you can see it yourself. Let me get the webpage up. It clearly defines what a crime against humanity is, Right. And it's, it's stated as crime against humanity refers to a category of crimes against international law, which includes the most egregious violations of human dignity, especially those directed toward civilian populations. The modern understanding of crimes against humanity is codified in the founding statutes of the International Criminal Tribunals, including the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslav whatever, and the International Criminal Court, the ICC, is codified by Article 7 of the ICC statute. The following acts are punishable as crimes against humanity when perpetuated by a state actor as part of a systemic or widespread attack against a civilian population. Murder. Extermination. Deportation or forcible transfer. False imprisonment torture, rape, sexual slavery, enforced sterilization, ethnic persecution, disappearance, and apartheid, and other inhumane acts of similar character intentionally causing, intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury to body or to mental and physical health. Now today, we're going to tap into some really dark history of our nation, so that you can understand how those that have been selected over the years have pretty much done a bunch of this. We already know that our tax dollars pay for rape, sexual slavery, or enforced sterilization. That's something that our nation should have been held accountable for already. And just as a reminder that this is an actual fact, and I'm not just saying it, I'm going to play a, an old video. Old about a year old, um, where I'm going to put the three-minute clip rather than the 27-minute clip. But let me show you where it is. 
so that you can see it yourself on your own downtime on my YouTube channel. So here is my YouTube channel. I haven't been banned yet because uh, I'm very careful at what I put. But this one, Toasted Cornflakes and EU Jennings. This is the longer version. This is the shorter one. Let's go. 72% of Chicago's deaths have been, have been among black Chicagoans. I stood before you and talked about the fact that black folks were dying at seven times the rate of any other demographic. Of course, African-Americans are being disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and D.C. is no exception. Blacks represent more than two times the cases of any other demographic. There are 79 percent of the 285 deaths in Washington, D.C. This virus affects black people. It hits us more harshly. Corbett said, also said that Moderna has slowed down their enrollment in order to get more black people to enroll. They were only at 6% enrollment in a study and they stopped it and got it up to 10%, still not representative of the 14% of the population. Our COVID-19 coverage continues now with a closer look at the vaccines and why black people should trust them. Connecticut, for instance, I think it was quoted that 8% of individuals who are white who test, they test positive. Over 30% of individuals who are black are testing positive. They're knocking on hundreds of doors to build trust and get the COVID-19 vaccine. The key to NYC pass will be a first in the nation approach. It will require vaccination. The pseudoscience of eugenics, more than 30 states passed laws allowing for the forced sterilization of so-called defectives. And took my child, and when they did that, they sterilized me. What do you think I'm worth? State officials declared Riddick feeble-minded and unfit to have children. The population question is a great concern today. Do you feel that birth control is essential to keep millions of people across the world from starving? Well, I think the birth control will to keep the population uh, more or less static until you pick up your resources. The goal was to rid society of certain undesirable traits. Main reason is because I was poor and out black. So now they're going to say, because control of virus is racist, it risks black people from going to the polls, right? So even if they do uh, simply, you know, say, hey, you're wearing a mask, you should be fine. Apparently, black people are more prone. You know what makes me wonder? So we know that the elderly uh, die really easy from anything, right? But what if the Democrats are actually killing black people to get numbers? Like, what if they're going after black Americans? I mean, do you doubt that? But see, nobody seems to remember history. Democrats are the racists. And so them purporting and saying that we're racist is just deflection. They, um, you know, make you think like the other side is the bad guy. So eugenicists in California sent this book to the Nazis. Yes, they did. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. That was a reminder. I have the extended video um, that talks about this in more detail. Uh, thank you, D. Geller. I'm trying to keep up with this stuff. <laughs> so um, I wanted uh, you guys to know that today, uh, just now, I just showed you one crime against humanity, which is forced sterilizations, right? According to this, you know, legal information institute <clears throat> that everyone has access to and most lawyers go to, there we go, and forced sterilization. So you have to think, 
right? Did, did, did the United States ever get hold accountable for it, held accountable for it? No. And as you saw, all these people in California that suffered forced sterilizations had requested reparations from Kamala Harris, who was first to talk about giving <clears throat> reparations to those that, uh, you know, we're slaves that are no longer alive, but you know, their fourth, fifth generations are here. So therefore they deserve payment. But those people that are still alive that had this extreme crime against humanity committed against them, she ignored them. Remember that she ignored them. Now there are many things that uh, one can tell you about the law and what's right and what's wrong, but no one's going to force you to do what's right. No one can. <laughs> you just have to hope that other people are as morally sound or um, willing to do things that are correct. Correct in the sense of morality. Now, how the ICC court works is that there's a treaty called the Rome Statute. And it grants the ICC jurisdiction over four main crimes. One of them is genocide. Today, I'm going to show to you how the United States has actually committed that too. Secondly, the ICC can prosecute crimes against humanity, which are violations committed part of a large-scale attack on any civilian population. I think what you're going to see today ticks box number two as well. And that would include, obviously, uh, murder, rape, imprisonment, and forced disappearances, enslavement, and particularly of women and children, sexual slavery, torture, or pet heat, and deportation. So we tick that box, too. The third box is war crimes, which uh, are grave breaches of Geneva Conventions in the context of armed conflict and include, for instance, the use of child soldiers, the killing or torture of persons such as civilians or prisoners of war, intentionally directing attacks against hospitals, historic monuments, or buildings dedicated to religion, education, art, science, and charitable purposes. You know, we would tick, uh, you know, box number three when we're talking about the war that's happening in our nation, right? Because they have taken down our monuments. They have indeed uh, attacked our education, our religions, our arts and sciences. Um, but <laughs> the fourth crime is a crime of aggression. It's you, it, it is when there's armed force by a state against the sovereignty or integrity or independence of another state. The definition of this crime was adopted through amending the Rome Statute at the first review conference of the Statute of Kampala, Uganda in 2010. On the 15th of December, 2017, the Assembly of State Parties adopted by consensus a resolution on the activation of jurisdiction of the court over crime of aggression as of the 17th of July, 2018. Now, our nation, you know, many people say there are uh, issues with the, with the court. And yes, they are. Because the court itself allows crimes to happen. Crimes against humanity, let's go by terms of extermination, is that the perpetrator exercised any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership 
over one or more persons, such as by purchasing, selling, lending, or bartering such person or persons, or by imposing them on a similar deprivation of liberty. That's the one element to satisfy against human enslavement. I'd like you to think about that for a second. Enslavement. Number two, the conduct was committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack directed against a civilian population. Think about that one too. The perpetrator knew that the conduct was part of an intent, it was part of or intended the conduct to be part of a widespread systematic attack directed against a civilian population. Now, this is Article 7.1c talking about enslavement, not the extermination that we're focusing on now. But I think Article 7.1c may be applicable to the people of the United States right now by their own leaders. I just want you to think about that for a second. Article 7 is what they quote. 7.1a is crimes against humanity, murder. The perpetrator killed one or more persons. The conduct was committed as part of widespread systematic attack directed against the civilian population. The perpetrator knew that the conduct was part of the intended or the intended conduct to be part of a widespread systematic um, attack against the civilian population. There's a lot of copy paste here. So what you're going to see today satisfies Article 71A. And then we go to seven, uh, Article 71C. Crimes against humanity, uh, B, of extermination. The perpetrator killed one or more persons, including by inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction of part of a population. The conduct constituted or took place as part of a mass killing of members of a civilian population. The conduct was committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack directed against a civilian population. And the perpetrator knew that the conduct was part of or intended the conduct to be part of a widespread systematic attack directed against civilian population. So this is, this is quite a heavy topic because we never like to see our nation be thrown into the basket of all these things. Article 1, Article 7, 1D, crime against humanity of deportation or forcible transport. Again, copy paste on the last parts, the first parts, the perpetrator deported or forcibly transferred without grounds permitted under international law, one or more persons to another state or location by expulsion or other coercive tactics. Such a person or persons were lawfully present in the area from which they were so deported or transferred. That's another strike. Article 71E, crime against humanity of imprisonment or other severe deprivation of physical liberty. Article 71F, crimes against humanity of torture. Perpetrator inflicted severe physical or mental pain or suffering upon more one or more persons. Let's see, Article 71. Where are we? 
Where is that? Um, disappearance. Article 71J, crime against humanity of Bardheed. The perpetrator committed an inhumane act against one or more persons. Such act was an act referred to in Article 7, Paragraph 1 of the statute, or was an act of character similar to those acts. The perpetrator was aware of the factual circumstances that established the character of the act. The conduct was committed in the context of institutionalized regime or of systematic oppression and or domination by one racial group over another racial group. Article 71K. Crime against humanity of other inhumane acts. The perpetrator inflicted great suffering or serious injury to body or mental or physical health by means of inhumane act. Now, I'll tell you what. If indeed, oh, wow. Thank you, lucky gal, and thank you, cows for Q. <laughs> if indeed the criminal courts were able to have jurisdiction in our nation, we would be held accountable for the majority of Article 7. Yet, for whatever reason, the International Criminal Court does not apply to the uh, United States. I think it's important for us to see uh, just a short clip of what exactly the International Criminal Court is. And this is not talking about domestic. We can get to the domestic part because you have to think about all the domestic crimes against humanity that are happening. I mean, bottom line is ABC 777 WABC in New York has pedophile, convicted pedophile Anthony Weiner on the radio. I mean, I'm just surprised that all of my listeners haven't called to complain and say, what in the flying is going on here? Like John Katsimidis has lost his mind, zero integrity, playing politics with pedos. John has lost all respect of mine. And I'm pretty sure that it won't cost you one bit to let him know exactly that. Katz is a sellout because he bent the knee to a pedo. End of story. Now let's get to the juice of things. Let's see. The International Criminal Court in The Hague was set up in 2002. Independent and permanent, it was established to bring to justice those accused of the most serious crimes of concern to the international community, genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. The ICC is a court of last resort and will only act if a case is not investigated or prosecuted by a national judicial system. It can also act if a country is clearly attempting to protect a person from criminal responsibility. A country may also be unable to pursue an individual because its justice system has collapsed. The ICC can only prosecute a person or persons whose crimes were committed in a country which has ratified the treaty or if the accused is a national of a country which accepts the ICC's jurisdiction. An inquiry can be opened by the prosecutor at the request of a ratifying state. The prosecutor's office can also initiate investigations on its own, provided it has the prior authorization of three independent judges. The United Nations Security Council can also request the prosecutor launch an investigation, regardless of whether it involves a state party or not. All right. 
So jurisdiction is key. No jurisdiction, you can't do anything. Let's get to the next part. What exactly does it do? And this video will tell you exactly what it does by complaining how it's under attack. So maybe that'll help. The International Criminal Court, also known as the ICC, was set up in 2002 to bring to justice perpetrators of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. But the effectiveness and legitimacy of the court has been widely questioned. The U.S. has been especially vocal in its opposition. As far as America is concerned, the ICC has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, and no authority. So, is the ICC up to the task of bringing justice? The ICC has 123 members. But many countries, including the US, Russia, and China, are not part of the court and do not accept its jurisdiction. The US has threatened tough action against the ICC if it attempts to prosecute Americans for alleged war crimes in Afghanistan. The US also objects to a possible investigation of Israeli actions in occupied Palestinian territory. It argues the court undermines national sovereignty. The court has also been criticized for unfairly targeting African countries. Of the 26 cases brought before the court so far, all have dealt with crimes committed in Africa. To date, the court has reached verdicts in six cases, resulting in eight convictions and two acquittals. The court says it is examining many alleged crimes outside Africa. In September 2018, it announced a probe into the treatment of the Rohingya Muslims fleeing ethnic violence in Myanmar. But Myanmar is not a member of the ICC and does not accept its jurisdiction. The court has found a way around this. It has determined that elements of the alleged crimes against the Rohingya took place in Bangladesh, which is part of the ICC. The court is now opening a preliminary examination. But even so, it's not certain that perpetrators can be brought to trial. Since the ICC does not have its own police or enforcement body, it would rely on Myanmar to extradite suspects. This demonstrates just how difficult it is for the court to carry out its work, especially without the support of some of the world's most powerful nations, such as the United States. The ICC says it will continue to do its work undeterred. Undeterred. Okay. Now, let's go back to their fancy map for a second. President Trump rightfully said that they have no jurisdiction, which is true. But let's look at the places where they do have jurisdiction. Canada. How come the ICC isn't enforcing crimes against humanity in Canada with what the banks did, with what they're doing, with their rights to their bodies? Right. Look at all of Europe, all part of that. And the majority of Africa, part of that. And look at South America. Oh, my. And Mexico. And Mongolia. And Australia. And Japan. <laughs> so if they have no jurisdiction, they can sit there and judge without having any say really on how it goes. And in essence, something like this, an organization like this sounds great on paper, 
but it's really not. You don't know who these people are. And obviously, a lot of people tell you how the ICC has judges from actual countries that commit atrocious crimes, like slaughtering people for not being the right religion, throwing gays off roofs, you know, stuff like that. But the problem that we have is everyone can agree that on paper, the ICC looks great, right? We can all agree on that. It looks great. We don't want crimes against humanity. And it, the funny thing is, is that the United States was the one that came up with the idea. But okay, not you don't apply to me, nor Russia, nor China, right? So the U.S. has no direct say. <sighs> but it is up to the citizens themselves in nations to hold their leaders accountable for such crimes. I can't begin to tell you how many people I have spoken to over the past four years expressing their pain and anguish, mental anguish that they have, knowing that every day that they work and every penny that is taken from their wages as taxes is being used for human trafficking human slavery, human experimentation, all with the consent of those that govern. The idea here that, that, that I'm finding hard to understand as to why it isn't understandable enough. I don't know. Is it not clear? The idea here is that while we're looking for our enemies outside our, our borders, they're actually within our borders. They're not outside our borders. They're within our borders. They are the ones committing crimes, not only against foreign nations, but their own people too. And it's not, and the Marshall Islands that we're going to talk about today are, is not the only place that this has happened. Because I'm going to show you how we have our own Marshall Island within the continental United States. And I'd like to know how all of you feel about that being right there and no one being held responsible for that right there. Yet we point fingers at other nations that commit atrocities. Yet we are also perpetrators of tremendous pain, death, and harm to not just a few people, to a whole nation being exterminated, being exterminated by us. And when you see the clip that shook me when I first saw it years ago on archives, you know, and I was bored and I was in offices, I would look around, right? I mean, what else do you do? Just sit there and twiddle your thumbs? You know, you're not allowed to have devices with you. So what do you do? You just look at stuff. I want you to hear this interview again, carefully, and listen to what this survivor, this is the voice of Paul Griego, a survivor. I worked at a health physics laboratory as a radio chemist. That's why I was able to go out there. What I was told, what it was headed to, is I was believing I was going post-cleanup and that I was going to be going to these postcard-perfect tropical islands to uh, 
go collect the soil samples on, on many different items out there to be able to certify it as safe. I also included a four days in Hawaii. So at 20 years old, I mean, this was, wow, guys, like, sign me up, I'm on my way. At, at 20 years old, you know, you believe you're invincible. I found myself in the middle of the atomic cleanup, and that was a little frightening at first. But then when I first arrived at the, an active cleanup island, I was relieved because there weren't any people running around in hazmat suits, and there wasn't uh, even a radiation decontamination center. There wasn't any radiation protection going on. So I misinterpreted that. I thought, oh, okay, well, apparently it's, it's not that radioactive. So I was relieved. However, these tropical islands, they were over 100 degrees and humidity was oppressive. And so we, we couldn't wear hazmat suits. It was impossible. Our 10-hour workday is six days a week. Just couldn't, couldn't happen. That obviously was the reason why there wasn't radiation protection. But as the weeks and months wore on, I started being afraid of the contamination. For example, we did get flu. They, they said that there was a flu going around and, and I did get sick and others got sick with, with the so-called flu. But, you know, as I look back at it, I don't believe it was a flu at all. I think that was radiation sickness. We were coming to what the completion of the of the dome, and it's this huge, gigantic concrete structure in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We felt, you know, it is a monumental size, so we wanted to put something inside there. The only things we have available, what they brought in, so a rubber glove. Well, we had plenty of those, so the idea of putting in the one finger salute kind of made sense. We called the Runit Salute, Runit being the island where we built the dome. We started dying off quite early. One young man, I believe he was only 23, and he died of lung cancer. Anyone dying of lung cancer at that age, even a heavy smoker, you know, that just doesn't happen. It was obviously his service in the Marshall Islands. We were able to put together a group using Facebook. And we talked cleanup veteran survivor group. There we, we shared our individual stories, our, our stories about the, the men we worked with, what's transpired in them. Our members were dying, dying of, of cancer. Out of the nine men that I had regular telephone conversations with, four of them are already dead. This is since 2014. The Runit Salute turned out to be the right message in several ways. One message is what's happened to the men who actually were tasked to build this dome. What happens now to the islanders? What would happen now to, to the Pacific Ocean, to the rest of the world? The dome is leaking, and it has been leaking from, from the beginning. So from the beginning, it's been leaking. And those veterans that were sent do not get coverage as being atomic veterans.
But let me show you exactly what an atomic bomb looks with all these fake houses in Nevada. Because everybody knows that in Nevada, they were dropping bombs to demonstrate how nuclear bombs go off and how they affect the people, right? So let's take a look. This is some of the most intense footage. It's like user discretion advice. This house was 6,000 feet from ground zero. Other homes that were closer were incinerated. Everybody has seen that very famous footage of the houses just imploding and then exploding out. What happens first is that it gets hit by the heat, and so it blistered almost all of the paint. When you look on the back side of the house, you can still see some remnants of the paint. It ripped all the gutters off of the house. The chimney here was shifted about six inches. The blinds that were on the windows were all blown out. But otherwise, this house withstood the blast pressures and the heat from the nuclear test. The Apple II bomb was placed in a tower 1,500 feet above the ground, so the resulting fireball wouldn't destroy monitoring equipment. Technicians built small towns within the blast zone. Shops, gas stations, dozens of homes made of brick and wood. They called the small cities Doomtowns. Here, just before dawn, for the first time in our history, American homes will be exposed to atomic blast. Today, Main Street of every American city and town. We had all kinds of houses built, grocery stores, we had... Uh, the electrical systems, single-story homes, two-story homes, wooden, brick, block, and so on, different distances from the ground zero to see what the effects would be from the blast and the heat. Inside the buildings, workers positioned entire families of mannequins who silently waited for the explosions to come. Let's see what would happen to a normal, average family we had mannequins with all different types of clothing on, wool, you know, cotton, rayon, nylon. The mannequins had a house that are roughly 5,000 feet away. I had them sitting at the kitchen table, and we had a lean-to in the basement. The mannequins became some of the most famous participants of the tests. And those mannequins that had radiation content, they never got them back, but the rest of them that didn't, they took them back. What they did with them, I don't know. <laughs> Scenes typical of the American family at home, first floor living room, children at play, unaware of approaching disaster. never seen that before, but that's not the abandoned town. I just wanted to show you just how our tax dollars were being used to see how um, this is a concern, right, for everyone. Now, it is quite astonishing to think that we convinced a nation a nation that really had no name but the name of their, the person that founded them. We convinced them 
to allow us to drop not one, but 67 nuclear bombs in their country. I want you guys to sit back and see how this was done. Because the Marshall Islands is a disappearing nation. Yes, the country itself is built on the lips of volcanoes that are underwater, that are protruding. So I want you to picture a volcano that's submerged and the crater's where all the lava comes out. And then the lips are the, you know, the, the, the circle part that surrounds the crater that's sticking out of the water. People actually made homes there. I mean, they were sea people and they traveled and they were like, yo, we're just going to hang out here. It's got coconuts, got has <laughs> guano, right? Tons of fish. We're good. And I just want you to see what our government did. And, and it's not just the fact that we convinced them to allow us to drop all these nuclear bombs for the greater good of humanity, of course. And, oh, God has this. Don't worry about it. Right. But what we did after and the position they are in now, it almost it's identical to the catch 22 that the American population is in right now, when Barack Hussein Obama decided to pass a law that says you are no longer allowed to sue any vaccine company that provides you a vaccine that has been mandated by your government. First and foremost, someone should have raised their hand in Congress or the Senate and said, I don't know about mandatory vaccines to our citizens. They have right to the sovereignty of their body. But I digress. Bottom line is you can die from it and you can't sue the government, nor can you sue the company that created the vaccine. Uh, this is why vaccines should always be under scrutiny in our nation. The minute that is out the window, you watch how vaccines are no longer mandatory. So I want you guys to sit back and watch this. It will indeed break your heart. Two, one. The Cold War was a time of fear for the United States of America. The Soviet Union and the United States were in a race to see which country could beat the other in developing technology and science to become the superpower of the world. While this non-conflict war is most known for the rivalry to the moon, it was also a race to see who could create the biggest nuclear weapons and harness their power in order to be used for weapons of war. After seeing the damage in Japan, Government officials and citizens in the United States feared the possibility of a nuclear attack on American soil. While U.S. citizens did bomb drills, the U.S. military began a scientific exploration program in the Marshall Islands that would change how the world viewed nuclear weapons. Following the United States' catastrophic success in nuclear warfare in the Second World War, the United States continued to explore nuclear possibilities in the Marshall Islands by engaging in nuclear exploration and conducting experiments to determine the effects of nuclear explosions on humans and plant life. The Marshall Islands encounters with nuclear exploration brought an exchange between the U.S. government and Marshall Island citizens that led to their displacement and a change to the traditional way of life. Before the United States could begin testing, officials had to find a place to conduct such destructive experiments. The Marshall Islands became the target of the United States nuclear exploration program due to its predictable winds, mild climate, and small population. Naval Commander Ben Wyatt first encountered the people of Bikini Atoll on February 10, 1946. 
He was there to request their toll be a part of the test. When the military that was trying to get permission was telling him that uh, this would be for the good of mankind and to end all world wars. The Bikinians packed up and left their islands, unaware that they would never return. Henry Kissinger would later state, There are only 90,000 people there. Who gives a damn? The Bikinians were moved to Rongurk, a much smaller island with far fewer resources on March 7, 1946. Within the next few months, they suffered food shortages and hunger. By the end of 1947, the Bikinians were starving. Marshallese politician Charles Dominic recalled as a child, I had my first dramatic, horrid, eye-opening, and shocking sights of emaciated people. People who were just skin and bones. They were left on Rongurk to fend for their own survival. The image I saw is not dissimilar from that of emaciated Jews when they were freed from Nazi concentration camps after World War II. The United States began exploring the power of nuclear bombs on July 1st, 1946. Between 1946 and 1958, the United States conducted 67 large-scale nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands. That is the equivalence of 1.6 Hiroshima shots every day for 12 years. When I was nine years old, I remember well the 1954 Bravo shot at Bikini Atoll, the largest detonation the world had ever seen. 1,000 times the power of the Hiroshima shot. It was the morning, in the morning and I was fishing with my grandfather. He was throwing net for scats that congregate along the beaches early in the morning in our small village. When all of a sudden, there was a silent, bright flash, and then a force, the shock wave. Everything turned red. I like to say that it was as if we were standing under a bowl, a glass bowl, and someone poured blood over it. The ocean, the fish, the sky, my grandfather's net, everything turned red. And we were 200 miles away from ground zero. While several bombs were detonated, the infamous Bravo bomb caused the most damage to people and the environment. The people of Ronglap, only 100 miles away, and other nearby islands were not even warned a nuclear test was scheduled. The winds were first expected to be blowing the opposite way of Ronglap, and fallout was not expected to travel there. But before the bomb was dropped, the winds changed and began blowing towards Ronglap. Dr. Alvin, the scientific director of operation, decided to continue Bravo, even though he knew the winds would most likely carry toxic fallout to Ronglap and its inhabitants. On March 1st, 1954, at 6.45 a.m., Bravo was detonated. Bravo was the most powerful nuclear bomb the United States would ever detonate. Several hours later, white fallout began to fall from the sky. Children played in it as snow. Over an inch covered the island. Within hours of the powder falling, people fell ill with headaches, nausea, irritated eyes and skin. People were left on wrong lap for two days before being evacuated. They were brought onto ships and told to leave everything behind. They were taken to the U.S. military base and studied for three months where the Marshallese were never informed what was causing their sickness. Blood tests showed low white blood cells, proving that radiation had affected their bone marrow. The people of Ronglap are estimated to have gotten 175 rentgens in a span of a few hours, while most people only experienced 20 in their lifetime. The Atomic Energy Commission reported the island was safe for human habitation, even though the commission knew 
the levels of radioactivity are higher than those found in other inhabited locations around the world. The Atomic Energy Commission stated it would be scientifically beneficial if they were to move back to their contaminated islands and continued to explore the effects of radiation. Marshallese people encountered wide-range side effects of radiation. The military kept track of the most common medical problems, thyroid disease, which at least one-third of Ronglat population endured. Many children showed signs of slower physical growth. Women suffered from miscarriages and stillbirths. Women of the island have given birth to babies that look like blobs of jelly. Some of these things we carry for eight months, nine months. There are no legs, no arms, no head, no nothing. Other children are born who will never recognize this world or their own parents. They just lie there with crooked arms and legs and never speak. As islanders continue to live in a dangerous environment, Ongoing monitoring found levels of radioactivity in the islanders' bodies had risen from 20 to 60 times the normal amount in one year. Animals and plants remain affected, but scientists and the U.S. government said it was still a safe place to live. John Anand, the mayor of Ronglap, asked to have his people relocated, but kept being told no. Eventually, Greenpeace helped move the 300 islanders to a small island in Kwajalein Atoll in May of 1985, after living for 28 years on a contaminated island that the U.S. government was studying. Ronglap Senator Jeetan Anaya said, We don't need brilliant scientists to come and tell us we are not sick. We've had health problems on Ronglap from the beginning. We are having health problems now, and we will continue to have them for the indefinite future as a result of the American nuclear testing program. In 1982, the United States created a Free Association Act with the Marshall Islands because Marshallese people wanted acknowledgement of nuclear testing and reparations for the damages done and continuing problems caused by nuclear testing. This act allows Marshallese to freely enter and exit the United States without a visa for an exchange of one atoll to continue to be a U.S. military base. It also settles all... I want to just point something out. So they gave them a deal. So they can't sue them. Remember, our veterans that were there to clean up huh, 40 years later, 30 years later, are not acknowledged as atomic veterans. Because then that acknowledgement acknowledges the crimes that they committed. Now, if you think that a government... So new, right? In 1980, they did this. And there's veterans out there right now, sick and dying and having cancer, right? Because they are atomic veterans and still aren't being taken care of. If they were able to do that, <laughs> you'd be surprised what they're doing right now. And you, you feel shocked. It's business as usual past, present, and future claims about nuclear testing with a one-time payment of $150 million paid to the Marshallese government. Now, no case can be taken through the American court system about nuclear testing completed there. The Marshall Islands are continuing to this day to fight for a nuclear-free world. They have recently taken India, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom through the International Court of Justice in hopes of opening the eyes of world leaders to the irreversible damage that can be caused by nuclear exploration. There is an exchange of culture in Northwest Arkansas where about 20,000 Marshallese live, while about 50,000 still call the islands home. They have moved here for many reasons, which include seeking employment, educational opportunities, 
the access to healthcare, the evident consequences of sea level rise in the Marshall Islands, and simply to join their families in the United States. The exchanges happening in Arkansas can be tied back to the Free Association Act that allows two cultures to encounter each other today. With the largest population outside of the island centered in northwest Arkansas, Marshallese Educational Initiative is an outreach program that works to promote awareness of the Marshallese legacy while also hoping to make positive changes in individuals' lives through education. The scientific exploration of nuclear weapons has dramatically affected the Marshallese people. The encounter with the U.S. led to the displacement of their people, the loss of being able to inhabit some of their home islands, and led to testing to be done on citizens because of nuclear fallout. Because of these encounters with the U.S., there's a cultural exchange happening between Marshallese culture and American culture. The nuclear testing on Bikini was a reality check for the rest of the world. The devastating impact on the lives of people of Bikini must never be forgotten. The careless testing of nuclear bombs on Bikini was a mistake that should never be repeated. Today I'm going to show you that it is being repeated in other parts of the world. But we need to see more of this. You need to see how um, that actually uh, what actually happened. Okay. Because a lot of people, you know, think, oh, okay, that just happened once. And no, it, it happens a lot. And it's uh, quite sad because while we sit here and we contemplate on how did we allow it to get so bad? How did we allow them to commit such atrocious crimes and can't fathom the crimes that they are committing now. We sit there and we can't fathom that they're capable of doing this. Here's the cleanup. This is footage from the 1980s, 80s, right? 40 years ago, 80s. And they conducted the experiment, 1947, 1950, 1946, 1957, 80s. So what you're seeing is actual footage from 1980 during the cleanup. One has to wonder, look, he's not even wearing clothing that would protect him. He's in shorts and a t-shirt. It's terrible. Oh, there we go. Hazmat suits. Remember, they dumped all of it in an unlined crater. Yet, you're a conspiracy theorist to think that your government would poison you with shit in the air, shit in your food, or in your vaccine. You're so stupid. They'd never do something so criminal. Like eliminate a whole nation, because how did Kissinger say it's just 90,000 people? Who gives a shit? Ha! And yet, you still elect these clowns in office. You still have them ruling you, and it's about time we change that. This is the Marshall Islands. This is where they're building this dome that you're seeing. That was actual footage uh, from 1980. Um, let me see. Let's see from the underside, the atomic abyss. This is a nice short clip. And uh, did you know that the guy who invented the bikini got the name bikini from the island because of its shape? I mean, silver lining, right? Never be forgotten that the bikini that you wear is named after part of a nation that was eradicated with uh, 67 nuclear bombs. And a bomb... That was the Bravo bomb that was massive, bigger than Hiroshima. That is still causing issues till today. The atom bomb is here. It exists. 
we must look to the future. Up until now, only three have been exploded, and none over the water. As I was growing up, I loved the ocean. I did my first dive at the age of 12, and I instantly knew that I wanted to be a diver of some sort. My whole adult life has been spent diving in one form or another. And now to be here in Bikini Atoll, diving the ghost fleet, it's a sub-pilot's dream. My name's Mark Taylor, and I'm the sub-team leader. I run the submersible operations on board the Aleutia. We're currently in Bikini Atoll. We're here to go and explore some of the wrecks. We're using cutting-edge technology, new cameras, and it's the first time it's ever been done like this. So, I had running, and I am ready for the water. Over. Am I clear to vent? Roger, Pacific Ocean lies the tiny coral atoll of Bikini. It is here that Joint Army-Navy Task Force One will conduct the tests for the atom bomb. Only by unleashing the destructive force of atomic energy could the Navy determine the future ship design of modern naval sea power. In 1946, more than 70 naval vessels were sunk during the atomic testing in Bikini Atoll. The seabed's now a graveyard littered with warships and the USS Saratoga is the only aircraft carrier ever to be destroyed by a nuclear weapon. We're going to drop down to the seabed and see if we can find some of the aeroplanes on the deck of the Saratoga when the actual blast went off so hopefully we can find something. I've just picked them up on sonar. The blast must have been ferocious. Just tore everything to pieces and spat the aeroplanes off like toys. Let's go and find the back end of the ship, see if we can find the propellers. Unbelievable. It's amazingly well preserved. This is amazing, seeing that flight deck up there. You realise how big it is and how small we are. Surface, Nadir, at the Saratoga, traversing to the forward guns. Over. It's fantastic, Mark. It uh, looks quite menacing. Twin five-inch barrels, poised, ready to shoot. Every dive that we take these submersibles on, we're seeing new stuff that no human has ever seen before. We've only just scratched the surface on what's actually in the ocean. We're literally diving into the unknown. Yeah, surface Nadir at the mooring line, over. Here we are, just in time for sunset. We've probably explored 10% of our oceans. There's so much to be seen and so much that we don't understand. So it's so important that we go out there, document it, and bring it back for everybody to see. That was an underwater exploration. I'm just surprised he's not wearing any nuclear um, 
hazmat suiting or anything like that, which was really weird, right? But let's go, let's, let's go to geography now before we cut to a break. These guys are pretty cool. I watch them. But what you're going to have to see is, listen to what they say about Ukraine. And the reason I say this is because this was taped in 2018. Listen to what they say about the Ukraine. Okay, let's go. What is that? We have Geography Now t-shirts? Yeah, you can get them at geographynow.com. Guys, the only way we can open up this episode is with a fair use, safe parody song. Oh, who lives in a radioactive atoll? Invertebrates! And possibly cause a big monster to grow? It's Godzilla! But seriously, this place has some cool stuff. Like, no, no copyright law. law! Come visit if you think that it is a bluff! Marshall Islands! Marshall, Marshall Islands! Pandering much? You bet. Hi, Gen Z. It's time to learn geography. Now! Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Barbs, and we are back in Oceania. Woohoo! The one thing most people know about this place is the Bikini Atoll, where Godzilla was basically born. No, but seriously, apart from that, this country actually has quite a unique history of seafaring culture that goes thousands of years in the past, and it lives on today. Where are the Marshalls? Well, let's find out. Named after British explorer John Marshall in 1788, the Marshall Islands are known locally as Jolet Gen Anich, or the gifts from God. And they've been kind of like oases in a desert of water. First of all, the Marshall Islands lie in the Pacific Ocean, part of the larger island regional group known as Micronesia, with a maritime boundary with other states such as Kiribati, Nauru, and the Federated States of Micronesia. The country is made up of 29 coral atolls, comprised of over 1,100 smaller islands and islets, as well as five solid isolated islands, Jemo, Kili, Jabot, Lib, and the country is divided into 24 municipalities corresponding to the 24 inhabited atolls and islands, including the capital Majuro, which holds about half of the entire population in it. After the capital Majuro, the next largest towns would be Ebeye on the Kwajalein Atoll, the one with the most land area at a whopping six square miles, then Arno on the Arno Atoll. Keep in mind though, the Kwajalein Atoll has limited access, usually only to Marshallese citizens and U.S. military personnel, as well as a few authorized contractors and journalists. The country has about 30 airports and airstrips amongst the atoll so that people can get their supplies faster. The largest and main international one being Majuro's Marshall Islands or Amata Kapua International. Finally, there is a somewhat kind of ongoing territorial dispute with the ownership of Wake Island that is currently administered by the U.S. Now, if you watch the Kiribati episode, you'll know exactly what living on land here is like. Ken, ugh, you take this one. Why? Because, you know, you kind of already did the Kiribati and Madagascar episode, so I think I'm just going to kind of like designate you as the island explainer guy from now on. Wait, is this a promotion? Yeah, it's a promotion of the Marshall Islands to all those curious minds out there. The majority of the land are made up of atolls, which are basically ring-shaped islands that are edges of unbreached underwater volcanoes. And the Pacific has tons of them. This means that the people have to deal with life in extremely narrow land corridors that could only sometimes be a few meters wide. The main airport runway was literally built to be wider than the actual coral sandbank it sits on. Most people travel to other atolls either by charter boat or a small plane. Fortunately, the atolls are not too far from each other. On average, about 15 to 50 miles, so day trips are not uncommon. Thank you, Ken. That was pleasantly adequate. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. As a former U.S. territory, the Marshall Islands has been a fully sovereign state since 1986. However, they are still kind of deeply intertwined with U.S. affiliation on the administration level. Today, they have a compact free association agreement, which means something like this. Okay, look, USA, we think we can handle things on our own now. Plus, you kind of destroyed one of our islands, and we had to relocate, and now there's a ton of radiation. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'll hold on to the other guys like Guam, Samoa, and the Marianas, but yeah, yeah, you guys did kind of take one for the team. More than just one for the team. Okay, 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 fine, 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 fine. You're on your own. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I know things got a little messy, but you kind of already built a ton of bases and structures. You do have access to resources and global communications. I mean, maybe we can still kind of operate as one, but with distinct sovereign status. Oh, Marshy, it's like you've been reading my diary. And today, citizens of both countries are able to move and live and work in each other's countries with open status. The Marshall Islands get subsidies, business deals, access to the U.S. FCC, Postal Service, and Defense while the U.S. gets to operate formerly built bases as if nothing changed from World War II times. And the same goes for Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia. We'll get into that in another episode, though. Stay tuned. But yeah, the people of the Bikini Atoll were effectively relocated to Keeley Island after Castle Bravo, the largest atmospheric nuclear test that was ever conducted by the USA. <laughs> That's cute. If you look close from satellite images, you can actually see the craters caused by the bombs on these atolls. The Inewatak Atoll still remains inhabited, though, as the U.S. built a radioactive containment dome known as the Cactus Dome. It's really not recommended to visit this place because of all the radiation, but some people actually do, like this crazy Kiwi guy. Anyway, if you visit some places of interest you might want to consider checking out, might include places like the College of the Marshall Islands, International Convention Center, Marshall Islands Visitors Authority, the Adele Museum and Public Library, any of the various churches small quaint town of Jobor on the Jaluit Atoll, the coconut fields of Woche, and tourism for the Bikini Atoll closed in 2008. However, some nuclear tourism enthusiasts are allowed to go in with special arrangements. Yeah, nuclear tourism, that's a thing. Just wait for the Ukraine episode. Anyway, moving on. In the Marshall Islands, the primary... Did you guys hear that? Just wait for the Ukraine episode. These guys know their stuff. measure of wealth is found in land ownership. And with such limited space, you can imagine how much honor is at stake. First of all, the country is divided into two main island chains, the eastern Ratak, or Sunrise Islands, and the western Ralik, or Sunset Islands. Each of these are composed of coral limestone, a porous rock with little fertility. Although the total land area only encompasses about 70 square miles of landmass, 181 square kilometers, they claim about 750,000 square miles of ocean territory in their exclusive economic zone. Likiep Atoll has the highest point at only about 10 meters. There are no rivers and only a few ponds and lakes, the largest ones being the small ponds on Lib and Mejit Islands. The country has no national animal, but the Maria is a national flower. Otherwise, they have about 70 species of birds, 300 species of fish, hundreds of invertebrates like the coconut crabs and house scorpions, about four species of sea turtles, and only one endemic land mammal, the Polynesian rat. Whew. Okay, once again, Noah is not here to do the physical geography co-host segment because he's traveling, so, uh, uh, Keith, I don't know. Would you like to take on this segment? Um, sure. I'm normally like a one-liner type of guy and, you know, puns and stuff, but... Yeah. Hmm. No. Eh, just try it. Yeah! Most people depend on rainwater collection for fresh water to drink and grow crops with. In 2013, a state of emergency was declared as a drought was happening and the government distributed solar water purifiers and pumps to outlying communities for assistance. I got it! 
Yeah, keep going. Now, economically speaking, the Marshall Islands is no shocker quite a small market. 60% of their yearly budget comes from direct U.S. aid. This means for production, they use every last square inch of land to grow crops. Otherwise, fish is where most of the protein comes from, which is why the atoll structure is so important as the ring shape keeps certain species confined and corralled while shock absorbing turbulent outside waves. This is why fishing on isolated islands like Keeley are a bit more difficult. Otherwise, some popular dishes might include Quanjin Jajmi, baked papaya and coconut milk, and Taitui fried banana pancakes. And who better to cook those dishes than the people of the Marshall Islands? Let's meet them now, shall we? <laughs> Dude, thank you, Keith. That was amazing. Follow him on Instagram. Whenever we cover island nations, it's very interesting to see how the people of these states learned how to adapt and survive on what are some of the most remote places on the planet. First of all, the country is made up of about 54,000 people and about half live in Majuro. Out of the population, the vast majority at around 92% identify as ethnically Marshallese. Otherwise, about 6% are mixed Marshallese with other nationalities, and the remaining population are mostly Americans with a few Asians like Filipinos, Chinese, and Japanese. They use the American dollar as their currency, they use the types AB American style plug outlets, and they drive on the right side of the road with whatever little roads they have. They did, however, become the first country in the world to issue their own national cryptocurrency as legal tender known as the Sovereign, passed in 2018 known as the Sovereign Currency Act. The country has two official languages, Marshallese and English. Both are spoken by nearly everyone, even in remote atolls. Now, as for being Marshallese, what does it mean? Well, first of all, the Marshallese are a subgroup of the broader Micronesian people group. This includes Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia, their closest relatives. Traditionally, the Marshallese are a matrilineal society, which land is passed down from the mother's side. Populace was divided into clans or Bwij. There are three subgroups, the commoners or Kajur, the lower chiefs or the Irujrik, and the high chiefs, the Irujlaplap. Today, the social structure still kind of lives on, but the dependence on the U.S. has kind of dwindled the traditional role of chiefs as they are now just kind of seen as like communal figureheads. Historically, just as we studied in the Madagascar episode, the Marshallese come from the Austronesians, descended from thousands of years ago, migrated from Southeast Asia. They were known for being expert sailors and navigators. They use a unique system of stick charts made from sticks and coconut fronds. The shells were representative of islands and they measured wave crests. These were actually used all the way up to World War II when the electronic navigation technology was introduced. Otherwise, some other traditional items and customs might include things like woven rito fans, kemkem or the festivals and feasts. Taking a boat trip to visit friends and family is called jambo, which also means high in Swahili. Jockey mats woven from pandanus leaves. And of course, there are traditional dances for both women and men, like the warrior stick dance. Most Marshallese identify as Christian Christians, mostly Protestant, about half belonging to the United Church of Christ. Speaking of which, history time. Austronesians come in maybe about 4,000 years ago. Chiefdoms and traditional societies. This guy comes in in 1526. He calls it Los Pentados. This Russian dude of German descent crosses the world and stops by. The Germans and Brits set up trading posts. Tension starts with the Spanish. Germany just kind of buys the islands. World War I, Japan comes in and takes over and just kind of plants a base. World War II, the Americans push out the Japanese. UN Security Council concludes that the country should fall under the U.S. administration. For 18 years, 67 bomb tests were launched. The residents of Bikini Atoll were evacuated. 1979, Independence. 1986, Compact Association Agreement. 1999, Kisai Note becomes the first commoner to overthrow the chief president tradition. And here we are today. Some people of Marshallese descent or born in the Marshall Islands might include people like Todd Light, Lisa Loring, Roman William Kress, Peter Langzadkaya, Anne-Marie Hepler, and Wes Knott. All right, time to move on. Who do these Marshallese peeps hang with? Here we go. 
As a small nation, you would think the Marshall Islands would have trouble with outreach, but the complete opposite seems to be true. For one, India has been recently reaching out a lot as former president Narendra Modi initiated the India Pacific Islands Cooperation Forum in 2014. Since then, high-level visits have taken place and trade started opening up. The Marshall Islands is also one of the few countries that recognizes Taiwan as a nation. And in 2005, former president Chen Shui-bian became the first foreign head of state to make an official visit to the Marshall Islands. When it comes to their family, they are part of the Micronesian triplets along with Palau and Federated States of Micronesia. These three are the closest culturally, their languages are pretty intelligible, and they are all able to travel to each other's countries without passports and stay indefinitely without visas. When it comes to their best friends, however, most likely it would be the USA. After signing the Compact Free Association Agreement, things changed quite a bit. Through the US, relations and global outreach and business soared. A huge chunk of the economy is dependent on the US, and citizens of both countries could now freely move and live in each other's countries with no hassle. Springdale, Arkansas has the largest community of Marshallese people outside of the Marshall Islands with about 5,000 people. In conclusion, Godzilla and SpongeBob radiation jokes aside, the Marshall Islands is like the quietest little ocean nation that has seen the craziest things ever happen in the past few centuries. Still, they just move on one canoe paddle at a time. Stay tuned, Mauritania is coming up next. So I absolutely love their channels. For those of you that homeschool your kids, I would highly recommend their YouTube channel, Geography Now. But uh, if you noticed, it was the UN that said, that decided, okay, that the Marshallese Islands now are annexed by the United States, end of story. And then in 1975 is when the trouble started um, in, in the Marshall Islands where they wanted to sue. And because people were getting problems with thyroid, that's because... Um, well, this has been studied with uh, radiobacterm. It is an actual bacteria that you can annihilate with radiation and then it'll re, um, reconstitute its DNA that you split into a million ways. But the key thing as to why, and, and you know, you know, I might be just saying this myself because this hasn't ever, ever been proven, but I mean, science, Occam's razor always stands, right? Um, the one thing that that bacterium doesn't do is use um, properties of iodine. And we all know that iodine is required for thyroid, hence why iodine is also used when you get a CT scan. Radiation, iodine, stimulation, there you go. Uh, so that would make sense on to uh, why they are having extensive um, uh, issues with their thyroid and cancer. But having said that, we're going to take a quick break right now and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes to continue. So that way you can see more of these atrocious crimes that our nation has purported against other nations. And I guess that gives you some solace that when you're sitting there thinking that your nation is literally your enemy, when you see what they have done and that they won't even acknowledge to their own U.S. veteran, which is the first thing we're going to show a segment about that uh, when we get back. Don't feel bad. You never elected them anyway. For the things we've done and left undone. For the ways we've wandered from your heart Forgive us, we pray Forgive 
Indeed, may the law, may the Lord have mercy on us for not even following basic man-made laws. Now, many of you might wonder why I'm bringing up the Marshall Islands. There are many reasons. I have told you to to to, to be very, very aware of underwater volcanoes. It's number one. Number two, I want you to find solace in the fact that atrocious crimes, crimes such as like Henry Kissinger said, it's only 90,000 people who gives a shit, which now you know we're down to 50,000 considering populations are supposedly rising from there, supposedly, of which 10% of their population has been relocated to northern Arkansas. How do you make up for something like that? Do you just give them a place and say, okay, this is your new home, do whatever? What do you do? Do you give them a whole state? I'm I'm for giving a portion of California away <laughs> or maybe New York or Chicago. I, I digress. Listen, we can't do that. We can't displace people. And, and in your conscience, you know, you owe them, the world owes them a debt, right? But it's not something you can do. How do you fix something that you can't undo? Now, the concerns that you will see now for the toxic tourism, uh, because we're going to go uh, uh, through all of this, but what's, what's terrible is that we have our own Chernobyl sitting in the middle of the ocean. And we all know what a big deal it is right now. <sighs> Fukushima. For those of you that live in Oregon you know how much debris is coming still from that nuclear reactor explosion, earthquake, whatever the hell happened, right? Because they're not going to keep their story straight. But I think, if anything, because you can't undo something. It's like breaking a glass and then expecting it to look the same when you put it together. You can't. But what you can do 
is ensure that it's talked about, to ensure that it never happens again on our watch, to ensure in the future, this is not even a thought. I will first show you these forgotten heroes. There was actually a segment done on this. Take a listen. ...up the mess left behind by nuclear testing on small Pacific islands. And thousands of service members and civilians who were tasked with that job say they've been forgotten by the military and are being denied their earned benefits. Gina Mangieri is always investigating. Gina? Joe, they want to be recognized as atomic veterans for the health and other benefits the government offers others exposed to nuclear testing. There are thousands of cleanup vets, many already dead from radiation-related diseases. It was known as the Pacific Proving Grounds, tiny islands bombed for nuclear testing for decades, starting in the 1940s. After Bikini Atoll, many of the tests were carried out here along the Iniwetok Atoll in the Marshall Islands. These islands held 1.6 explosiveness, the same as Hiroshima, a day for 12 years. American military servicemen observed from offshore. They could actually see through the guy in front of them because the light was so intense. Yeah, and you could see the x-ray bones of the guy in front of you. Military members in the Pacific for the tests are, to the Department of Veterans Affairs, recognized as atomic vets. So are other participants in above-ground nuclear tests and those near Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Atomic vets get radiation exposure compensation and health benefits. But that's not the case for thousands of American service members who, years later, cleaned up America's nuclear waste in areas still hot with radiation. If your badge turns red, get the heck out of there immediately. But there's nowhere to go. Every now and then they would uh, make us drive our dozers or trucks out into the surf to clean off the uh, soil because it was, you know, the dozer was too contaminated. What was your equipment like? Did you wear things like this? Never. Yeah, we were basically in boots, shorts, T-shirt, and a hat. The T-shirt was optional. This is the, the debris that they collected and that they put in these vehicles, that they put on the boats, that they send to the island to dump into the hole. And the same vehicle that moved this, the boats, took the guys back, back to work or took them back to the islands. Yeah. There was never any decontamination. Many of the cleanup veterans and civilians are dead. A high rate of cancer. Many others are sick. I had 37 uh, cancer spots removed. I had 57 biopsies. The other guys that were actually out there and digging in the dirt and breathing all of this continually are the ones that are really sick and have gotten internal cancers, brain cancers, tumors. I've got... Uh, Bronch, acute bronchitis. I went to the VA here at Tripler and tried to put in a claim as a nuclear veteran. And uh, basically, a month or two went by and, and I went back to check and the guy basically told me, uh, you know, we have no record of you ever being there. I was like, wow. So basically, you're making me feel like I'm trying to steal valor. Morgan was sent to the Marshall Islands in the late 70s when stationed with the 84th Engineers B Company at Schofield Barracks. But his service record for the time, critical to getting VA care, just refers to Hawaii, not the jaunt to the South Pacific. We're trying to basically get our government to acknowledge that we were even there. The U.S. Army Pacific told me they don't. 
So again, I'm going to reinforce something. Your DD-214 um, seldomly is correct. It is something to cover their asses with, and it is a paper that you use in order to get benefits that they will allow you to have. So, you know, you could have been in Uzbekistan, but it could say that you were in Virginia. And it's like, um, huh. It could say you were separated today, but you could have been separated 20 years ago. It's what they want. So that's number one to learn about this. Number two, like I said, by acknowledging them as atomic veterans, they admit to the crimes against humanity, which we would be fine with. We did it. We didn't do it specifically. People did it 80 years ago. And it's time we admit it that yes, we do it. Yes. Now what do we do? We ensure that this never happens again. And we ensure we take care of the people that are still alive and treat them like fucking kings and queens for what they did and the risk they were put in. But, you know, like Henry Kissinger and all those other great leaders that today are telling us what we should be doing. Right. Like the Soroses. Right. Like the Bidens. Right. Those clowns are the ones that say 90,000 people who gives a shit. You see, they treat our veterans like that. That should make everyone sick to their stomach retain and can't research individual records. Each individual vet or their surviving family has to go through the National Archives. We're not allowed any information on who was there. Everybody that went there, the U.S. government knows who they were and when they were there. The Army out of Washington, D.C. told me they would help estimate a veteran's radiation exposure for VA health care. But even if they prove they were there, the veterans still are not included in the atomic vets category for other benefits, something that's got the attention of Congressman Mark Takai. Clearly, if they were uh, like the VA treats everybody else, including the veterans of today, um, they would be rated uh, service connected. Uh, disability, and they would be provided with with care. When he was in the state legislature, Takai led efforts to ask the federal government to honor these cleanup personnel as atomic vets. After always investigating, followed up with Takai, now that he's in Congress, he sent the Department of Veterans Affairs a proposal. We're asking them to expand the definition uh, of uh, a veteran in this particular class and um, you know, we're hoping for the best. What what would be the easiest is for the VA to acknowledge it and to make the change. If the VA says, sorry, cannot do, Takai told me he'll work on a law. He says what we're doing now for other veterans and the Marshallese should set a precedent. The Compact of Free, Free, Free Association, COFA, uh, allows for pretty much unfettered access of um, uh, Marshallese to come to Hawaii. That's an obligation that we made to those people decades ago. Um, well, I, I think that that obligation should extend um, to service members who went back to those islands and, and, and addressed the fallout, you know, addressed the nuclear waste that was still there. It's costing our government hundreds of millions of dollars a year to take care of these people. Yeah. But what about us uh basically nothing yeah we're the forgotten few i'm following up on the va's response to the congressional letter seeking atomic vet status and whether a federal law needs to get rolling instead to help these forgotten heroes gina mangeri khon 2 news well 
You know, I'm, I commend the congressman that brought this up. But again, what he's asking them to do as a government, as a whole government, and this is where it gets sticky, is to admit that crimes against humanity were done. And in order to see that crime in its effect, I want you to see how they spoke and convinced these people to partake in this. They had no idea. Remember, these people were using sticks and seashells to navigate. These people were, they didn't even fit the definition of third world. They were like a hundredth world, right? They didn't have technology. They didn't use technology. And this is the 40s where very few countries had any technology. And this is how they convinced them. And it's quite heart-wrenching to hear it. Life was to live on a deserted tropical South Pacific island. Watch out what you tell the Lord. <laughs> America tried to bury its toxic legacy here on a remote coral atoll. They covered it over with an 18-inch thick dome and left. Now the sea is rising and the dome is leaking. And the men who tried to clean it up are dying. It's a total secret. We didn't even know. The guys didn't know. We were lied to. Tonight, we journey to one of the most contaminated places on Earth, and we meet the people fighting back. You know, if you accept that you're doomed, then what is left to fight for? You know, where are you going to find hope? We need the world to help us. Whatever the world is doing, please look at us. When you know what it really is, few would want to visit this place. This atoll is a ring of 40 islands, so remote that there's no regular transport in or out. It'll be a week before our plane returns, if we're lucky. It's a stunning place, but its beauty hides a dark, dirty secret. This is a place whose atomic past is seared into its present. The people of Eniwetok were forced into exile by the atomic fallout, allowed to return after three decades. Remember those laws that we read? Crimes against humanity. One of them is deportation or forcible transfer of a population, right? Aside from the extermination, the torture... And the crime, apartheid, and other inhumane acts, that was one of the stipulations we've already violated, uh, you know, evidently, and continue to. But I just wanted to point it out. We forced a whole population to relocate, and then we left them there to die while they were starving. Remember that. A new generation is learning about the traditions and customs of this place. They have also been taught about America's toxic legacy and how it lies under a giant dome. This is my land. 
they understand. Somehow they understand that we have a bison in our island. That is what they call bison. They know that there's a doom because they have been there. So the dome, you call it the tomb. Mm, we call it the tomb. We set out the next morning to see for ourselves. To do that, we need guides who know how to navigate the reefs and the World War II wrecks that lie in Eniwetok shallows. To get to where we're going, we have to cross the world's second largest ocean lagoon, formed by the rim of an ancient volcano. It's a thousand square kilometres of the Pacific. Krakatoa. After nearly two hours, we approach one of Eniwetok Atoll's 40 islands a tiny scrubby rise called Runet. We've come to see is hard to spot from the beach. Only from the air can you get a true sense of the size and the scale of what the United States military calls the dome. The dome is actually a dump. It contains the toxic leftovers of some of the most powerful atomic bombs in history, America's Cold War legacy. It is a tomb of nuclear waste. The dome is completely uh, unlabeled. There's no fence. There are no guards there. People can go there if they want, and there's nobody to stop them. Like other former nuclear test sites in the Marshall Islands, Runet Island is officially off limits. But there's no one here to stop us when we visit. This place is just too isolated to guard. From 1946 to 1958, the United States detonated dozens of atomic bombs in the Marshall Islands. And while Inuitok is hardly known, its closest neighbour, 300 kilometres to the east, became synonymous with nuclear fallout. Its name is Bikini. On Bikini Island, over three miles from the point of birth, on the water you can see the shockwave coming toward the camera. Watch those palm trees in the foreground. I'm from Bikini Atoll. Right now I don't think I'll be able to go back. I mean, it's just not clean enough for us. It's not safe. One of the country's last traditional navigators, Alson Kellum, is adrift living in exile because he's not allowed to return home to Bikini. Ahead of the atomic testing there in the 1940s, the United States told Alson Kellum's family and the 167 people of his atoll that they had a duty to the world to leave their islands. It was a moment filmed by the military's PR unit. Scene 26, take two. All right now, James, will you tell them that the United States government now wants to turn this great destructive force into something good for mankind and that this experiments here at Bikini are the first step in that direction. Already good and they're willing to go and everything is God hands. Well you tell them in King Judah that everything being in God's hands it cannot be other than good. 
And here, by the way, you hear them singing a, their Marshallese version of You Are My Sunshine. The Islanders are a nomadic group and are well pleased that the Yanks are going to add a little variety to their lives. Elson Kellen's 93-year-old aunt was one of those who was put on a boat and taken off her island. Seven decades later, the pain of forced exile is not eased. Every day she says, when are we going back? And I keep saying, oh, one day, I don't know when, but one day. But I know, I know for a fact that we're not going back. So it really, really made me sad because I don't know what to tell her. Should I lie to her? I mean, it's not our fault, but I don't want to lie to her. Hundreds of Marshallese were shifted off their islands by the United States. Some, like Lemweo Abon, after it was too late. In March 1954, her island was enveloped in the fallout from one of the Bikini Blasts. Codenamed Castle Bravo, it was the biggest nuclear test ever carried out by the United States, a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. The earth shook. Yeah, when when we saw the bright light in in the loud sound, most of us were very afraid. We were afraid. And we just sit down and see what will happen next. A few hours later, 14-year-old Lemweo noticed white powder falling from the sky. Some of the kids, they didn't know what snow is, so they named that. Oh, the snow fell down. <laughs> this is the first time we just saw this, yeah. The snow was highly radioactive fallout from the Castle Bravo bomb. It took days for the Americans to evacuate them. The survivors remain nuclear refugees to this day. The meteorologists had predicted a wind condition which should have carried the fallout to the north of the group of small atolls lying to the east of Bikini. The wind failed to follow the predictions, but shifted south of that line, and the little islands of Ronjalat, Ronjerik, and Uteric were in the edge of the path of the fallout. The medical staff on Kwajalein have advised us that they anticipate no illness, barring, of course, diseases which may be hereafter contracted. Jack Needenthal washed up here in the Marshall Islands capital, Majuro, more than 30 years ago and never left. Now the head of the country's Red Cross, he has spent decades fighting for nuclear justice for the people of Bikini Atoll even taking their fight for compensation to Washington. As children, you don't open up your, your history books and see a word about bikini and the nuclear testing out here, even though in my belief, the Cold War was literally fought and won on the shores of bikini. I mean, there were 23 weapons tested up there, 20 of them were hydrogen bombs. I mean, the people of bikini did do a lot for mankind. I mean, even now these days, you have the North Korean leader talking about exploding a hydrogen bomb over the Pacific like it's nothing. The idea that they're even playing around with words and, and notions like that is so insulting and so infuriating 
to the people who live out here and have been through this and have suffered for since the 40s and 50s. It's, it's really awful for us to hear that. Scientists term the experiment an entire success, a success in destruction. As the smoke rises on Aniwitok, the curtain rises on the seeds of man's oblivion.